Thank you for joining us for the lessons from First NAS podcast. I want to, I have a few things I want to do before I get to uh, preaching this morning. I want to say thank you to those of you who have already uh, reached out with kind words and, and offered prayers for our family. We did lose a dear friend yesterday, um, our, our friend uh, Gavin Morris, who he's our crop duster buddy. And uh, the Morrises are the friends that stored our stuff. So if you went over to Ritzville and got our stuff before we moved back here, you might have met Gavin and his family. Uh, he, he had an accident yesterday and died. And so he leaves his wife, who's our age, and two girls, 10 and 7. Uh, and so if you think of it, Magdalene and, well, mom is Aaron, and then Magdalene and Adelaide uh, are his little girls. And they, they'll need lots of prayers. And we... We appreciate your prayers, too, uh, as we mourn our dear friend. Um, God is good to us with friends, isn't he? And uh, we, would, we would certainly rather, rather mourn a friend than not have had a friend. And so we thank God for the good memories we have and, and continue to lift up Erin and, and her girls. Uh, this morning, I, I want to address uh, something. I don't, I don't talk about what's happening in our world all of the time. And I wanted to just address the, the fact that Roe versus Wade was overturned 10 days ago. And I know that in our congregation, we have lots of people who have been praying for this day for years and rejoice. And we have lots of people in our congregation, many of the same people who heard the news and, and felt the gravity of, of women having, having an option that they have thought their way into that being the only option taken away from them. And I, I don't have good words for us in a moment like this. And so I turned to the most inspired book I know, The Manual of the Church of the Nazarene. Uh, as <laughs> That was a joke. Thanks for catching it. Uh, the Manual of the Church of the Nazarene doesn't always provide great light for us. It sometimes obscures issues. But on this one... The manual is kind of helpful, actually, in, in what we call our covenant of Christian conduct, which we all agree to uphold and, and make a part of our lives when we agree to be members of the Church of the Nazarene. Uh, we agree to, to the statement that is written here, and in a portion of the covenant of Christian character, covenant of Christian conduct, there is a section called the Sanctity of Life, and the first section, subsection under that section is called abortion, and I, I want to read what we as a denomination say we believe, and I want it to, to step on our toes where it needs to step on our toes, and I want it to encourage us where it needs to encourage us, and so I just invite you to, to hear what our agreed statement is as a global church. We say, the Church of the Nazarene affirms the sanctity of human life as established by God, the Creator, and believes that such sanctity extends to the child not yet born. Life is a gift from God. All human life, including life developing in the womb, is created by God in his image and is, therefore, to be nurtured, supported, and protected. From the moment of conception, a child is a human being with all of the developing characteristics of human life, and this life is dependent on the mother for its continued development. Therefore, we believe that human life must be respected and protected from the moment of conception. We oppose induced abortion by any means when used for either personal convenience or population control. We oppose laws that allow abortion. 
realizing that there are rare but real medical conditions wherein the mother or the unborn child or both could not survive the pregnancy. Termination of the pregnancy should only be made after sound medical and Christian counseling. Responsible opposition to abortion requires our commitment to the initiation and support of programs designed to provide care for mothers and children. The crisis of unwanted pregnancy calls for the community of believers, represented only by those for whom knowledge of the crisis is appropriate, to provide a context of love, prayer, and counsel. Let me read that section again without the, parent the parentheses because it gets a little confusing. Uh, the crisis of an unwanted pregnancy calls for the community of believers to provide a context of love, prayer, and counsel. In such instances, counsel can take the form, of, or support can take the form of counseling, counseling centers, homes for unexpected for expectant mothers, and the creation or utilization of Christian adoptive services. The Church of the Nazarene recognizes that consideration of abortion as a means of ending an unwanted pregnancy often occurs because Christian standards of sexual responsibility have been ignored. Therefore, the church calls for persons to practice the ethic of New Testament as it bears upon human sexuality and to deal with the issue of abortion by placing it within the larger framework of biblical principles that provide guidance for moral decision-making. The Church of the Nazarene also recognizes that many have been affected by the tragedy of abortion. Each local congregation and individual believer is urged to offer the message of forgiveness by God for each person who has experienced abortion. Our local congregations are to be communities of redemption and hope to all who suffer physical, emotional, and spiritual pain as a result of the willful termination of a pregnancy. Let me uh, just highlight a couple of points out of that, and uh, I'll move on. If you have been affected by abortion, God has offered forgiveness. Jesus Christ has dealt with it, and you are forgiven if you've sought forgiveness. God bless you, and may you live in the freedom of knowing that you are forgiven by your Savior. If um, we, we have some resources also available through the uh, Life Choices Clinic, and uh, we, we want to make those available to families in, in crisis or who are go dealing with the ongoing hurt and pain of, of having ended a pregnancy. And then, at such a time as this, I, I think that our support of, of an organization like Life Choices Clinic is, a, is especially important. And so I just wanna say thank you for everybody who participated last month in the baby bottle drive. Uh, over $1,000 came in through, through that offering, and so praise God and thank you for your generosity. And I, I hope that our, our community here, this, this body, continues to be, be a place that, that reflects what the manual calls local churches to be. Communities offering forgiveness, communities of grace, communities of hope, communities where people can find healing. And so may, may God see fit to make First Naz a place like that. Well, um, I still, I'm, I'm here uh, 
this morning. I still haven't decided how I'm going to begin this sermon. I think I'll just go with what's written, and uh, we'll, just, we'll just stay there. So it's, summer break has begun. Summer break has begun, and uh, my, my children are, are on summer vacation and are, are dream, drinking deeply of all that summer vacation is. They, they have uh, signed up for the summer reading program. They are enjoying watching lots of good shows on, on Netflix. We don't have TV that you can like change channels on. Uh, they're eating nothing but candy as much as they can, <laughs> as much as they can muster. I remember, it reminds me of being a child, though. It reminds me, I'm kind of living back through my own childhood through, through them. I was so lazy during spring break that a layer of moss would begin to grow on me like a three-toed sloth. I would just sit in front of the TV and, and eat bonbons, whatever there was in the house, until there wasn't anything left in the house, and then I would just sit there. And we had TV when I was a kid that you could change channels on, right? And so you, through, the, through the middle of the afternoon, there would be nothing, nothing good on. I mean, never was there anything good on. That's why we had so many channels, so that you could continue to turn and hope that there would be something good on. But when you just couldn't handle another episode of the Andy Griffith Show in black and white, sometimes you would find yourself on C-SPAN. And I remember C-SPAN would provide, you know, about 20 minutes of entertainment while you watch the British House of Commons, and they would talk about things that you could never understand, right? And you, you never have any hope of breaking through the obscure language. You never have any hope of understanding any of the issues. You know, they're always talking about pasture lands in North Wilfestershire and different things that I, you know, I just, what are we talking about? I, but I always kind of enjoyed it because they, they, were, they were so savage with one another, but never addressed one another completely, right? And so, so they would say things like, uh, the good gentleman from District 4 has no idea what he's talking about. And, you know, they, they, they say that kind of stuff, and, and it sounds almost polite because they're not addressing, you know, it's not William there who has no idea what he's talking about. It's the good gentleman from my neighboring city. That's just kind of a funny way that they, they, they blame each other. They make, they, you know, they're so harsh with one another and they're just like so nice at the same time. Politicians in the U.S. do the same thing when they're, when they're in committee or that kind of thing. You know, the, the good gentleman from District 4 just doesn't understand the reality of the situation. I, I think politicians probably, when, when they argue with their spouses, they say, well, the woman to whom I'm related by marriage knows nothing of these issues. Uh, this morning I was thinking about my good neighbor and his dog that won't stop barking. <laughs> you know, in life, a lot of time we, we spend trying to, find, trying to find who's to blame for our problems. A lot of life we, we spend thinking... Who, who could take the fall for this? Uh, it happens a lot in our culture. You know, a, a company releases a bad product and somebody has to lose their job over it. If it's a really bad flop, the CEO has to go. But, you know, if it's just kind of a minor flop, then it's somebody else in the, in the organization that has to go. We, we look for, for blame. We look for who, who we can have take the fall when, when something goes wrong. Um, whether it's, whether it's implicitly or explicitly. 
whether it's, whether it's a problem in our country, and as we're celebrating the 4th of July, can we admit that we, we stand with the writers of the Constitution who wish we could form a more perfect union? We, we uh, love our country, we love being a part of this place, and we recognize that not everything's perfect here. And, and we would love to form a more perfect uni union. It's so tempting in our, in our culture to, to try to find, who can I blame for the problems today? And that's a lot of what we hear in our culture, is who, who can we blame? And, and sometimes it is, it is important to know the source of a problem. It's important to know the root and what's going on, what's behind the scenes. But sometimes it's also just easier to blame than it is to come up with a real solution. Today we're looking at stories from the life of Elijah, and we come to a time in history when there was real problems in the nation of Israel. There were real problems happening in Israel, and, and many of the stories that we find in the life of Elijah could be, could be titled or under the big heading, The Saga of the Great Drought, because Elijah came onto the scene announcing that there would begin a drought. And then from, for, for quite a while in his life, then everything we know about Elijah is either directly or indirectly related to the drought. Last week, we looked at the story of the widow of Zarephath. That's a story that doesn't happen if there's no drought, but the drought isn't really a main character. Today, Elijah comes back onto the scene, and he, he comes face to face with King Ahab. And once again, the drought is center stage and so, we're, we're looking at a story from, from uh, 1 Kings chapter 18. If you'd like to follow along, it'll also be in the, on the PowerPoint here. But I'm going to be begin uh, looking at, a, at this time that, that God is, is calling Elijah to, to go and find King Ahab. And so, we're starting in 1 Kings chapter 18. We're going to look at verses 1 and, and 2, the first half of verse 2. It says this, Later on, in the third year of the drought, the Lord said to Elijah, go and present yourself to King Ahab. Tell him that I will soon send rain. So Elijah went to appear before Ahab. Okay, so the author of 1 Kings here gives us just a little, little bit of background. This really is just a prologue to the story because it's kind of, it's kind of summary. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't give us too many details, but it points out that this is the third year of the drought. Can you imagine? There has not been rain in all of Israel for three years. With that in mind, it's not hard to imagine how the widow of Zarephath got to the desperate point she got to, where she was gathering the last few sticks she would ever gather to bake the last little bit of bread she would ever bake, and then she was planning to lie down and die. And so we... We wonder how could anybody not be affected by, by a drought that lasts for three years? How could anybody live through a period of time when there, there is no crops being grown? And, and then Elijah hears the word from the Lord uh, that rain is coming and that he needs to go and present himself to King Ahab. And, and verse 2 starts with Elijah goes and presents himself to Ahab, but really that's just kind of a summary of what's about to come, because in order for Elijah and Ahab to become, come face to face, there's kind of a, a wandering story that takes place to get there. We read about the beginning of it in uh, 1 Kings 18, the rest of, of verse 2 through verse 6. It says, meanwhile, the famine had become very severe in Samaria. 
So Ahab, Samaria, remember, is the capital city of Israel where, where King Ahab lives. Ahab summoned Obadiah, who was in charge of the palace. Obadiah was a devout follower of the Lord. Once, when Jezebel had tried to kill the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had hidden 100 of them in two caves. He put 50 prophets in each cave and supplied them with food and water. Obadiah, Ahab said to Obadiah, we must check every spring and valley in the land to see if we can find enough grass to save at least some of my horses and mules. So they divided the land between them. Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah went another way by himself. So here we meet Obadiah. Obadiah is, is a character that's just in the story for, for a little bit here. Uh, we, we have to remember, though, that in in Ahab's Israel, not every person was worshiping a false god. Ahab, uh, Obadiah is, is a picture of someone who is faithful in spite of the reports we hear that pretty much everything is bad in Israel. And, and this, is, this is kind of a shock to our system as people who like to think in terms of black and white. We like to think everything and everyone in Israel under Ahab is bad. Everyone and everything is going after the idols, following, following false prophets, turning their back on God, and then here comes Obadiah. And, and we're reminded that there, there is a mix, uh, the, the Israel is a mixed body. They're, the faithful and sinners are mixed together. And Obadiah is secretly there in, in Ahab's own house. It says that he was in charge of the palace. Inside Ahab's own house, he was trying to, to go against the will of Ahab, and he was trying to preserve God's prophets. Now, we see that the effects of the drought have reached the palace. Ahab realizes that things are getting desperate for his horses and mules. If you were here a couple of weeks ago for my introduction of this series, I talked about how in, in the evidence outside of the Bible, Ahab was a very powerful uh, military heavyweight. He, he was a person who, who had lots of horses and mules and soldiers that he could, could use around the world. And so when he is concerned over his horses and mules, he's thinking about maintaining his military power. That's, that's what's on his mind as he thinks, I gotta, I gotta find a little green grass for, for my horses and mules. And as king over people, concerned about the well-being of his horses and mules, it's probably safe to assume that he hasn't missed many meals himself. Uh, he, he has wealth to buy produce and meat from other countries, uh, places that aren't experiencing drought. He has silos to store grain. And so when he goes out searching high and low for a few blades of grass for his livestock, it begs the question, what about your people, Ahab? What about the people? Where, where was Ahab when the widow of Zarephath was gathering the last few sticks she would ever gather to break, bake the last bread she would ever eat? And it, it sounds as if he was using what wealth he had, what he had stored, to keep some mules and horses alive. And that had run out, and so he was personally now going to preserve himself by going and looking for a few blades of grass. And so on, on the search for a patch, patch of grass, Ahab and Obadiah go their own ways. And, and as, they are, as they are wandering about, we hear what happens to Obadiah next in verses 7 through 14. As Obadiah was walking along, 
he suddenly saw Elijah coming toward him. Obadiah recognized him at once and bowed low to the ground before him. Is it really you, my lord Elijah? He asked. Uh, sorry, through 14. Yes, it is, Elijah replied. Now go and tell your master, Elijah is here. Oh, sir, Obadiah protested. What harm have I done you that you are sending me to my death at the hands of Ahab? For I swear by the Lord your God that the king has searched every nation and kingdom on earth from end to end to find you. And each time he was told, Elijah isn't here, King Ahab forced the king of that nation to swear the truth of his claim. And now you say, go and tell your master Elijah is here? But as soon as I leave you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you away to who knows where. When Ahab comes and cannot find you, he will kill me. Yet I have been a true servant of the Lord all my life. Has no one told you, my Lord, about the time when Jezebel was trying to kill the Lord's prophets? I hid a hundred of them in two caves and supplied them with food and water. And now you say, go and tell your master Elijah is here. Sir, if I do that, Ahab will certainly kill me. So Ahab, Obadiah gives us a little bit of the lay of the land here. He, he lets us know uh, Elijah has become persona non grata among Ahab's associates. Elijah, Elijah is a dirty word uh, around, around Ahab now. You, you don't talk about Elijah. Don't threaten to, to make any uh, claims that you know where Elijah is to King Ahab if you value your life. And, and uh, we, we read what people think also about Elijah here. As Obadiah says in, in verse 12, but as soon as I leave you, the Spirit of the Lord is going to carry you away to who knows where. It's the, the people had this view of Elijah as someone who had such a close connection with God that, that God would answer a prayer immediately if, if Elijah wanted to be transported to another place. Elijah could just ask God and God would do that. Or maybe it's that God had so much control over Elijah that Elijah just couldn't be trusted at his word because Elijah might say, oh yeah, I'm going to be here for the next hour, but God might just pick him up and move him. And, and he wouldn't be there anymore. And, and so Elijah just, he, he couldn't be trusted. And so Obadiah hears that, that Elijah says, go and tell Ahab, here, I'm going to meet him face to face. And he said, no way, not me, man. No way. That is way too risky. And so uh, Elijah tries to, to set his mind at ease a little bit in verse 15. He says, uh, but Elijah said, I swear by the Lord Almighty, in whose presence I stand, that I will present myself to Ahab this very day. That's quite a bit of security. <laughs> That's quite an oath. You know, it's interesting in the New Testament, Jesus says, don't make an oath, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Here is, is Elijah making an oath. He's saying, I swear by the Lord. He, he swears by the Lord in whose presence he stands. Did you know that all of us could, could talk about the Lord in whose presence we stand because God's presence is always with us, that God is constantly, constantly next to us, constantly with us, constantly abiding in our hearts. And, and as we seek God, we can experience his presence in an amazing way. This, isn't, this is a prophet speaking prophetically, but we all ex can experience God's presence. We all can say, I stand in God's presence because God's presence is with us. 
And so with, with that security, with an oath from, from Elijah, Obadiah feels secure in approaching Ahab. He says, okay, I'll do it. And we read the rest of the story in verses 16 through 18. So Obadiah went to tell Ahab that Elijah had come. And Ahab went out to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw him, he exclaimed, So is it really you, the troublemaker of Israel? I have made no trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. You and your family are the troublemakers, for you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord and have worshipped the images of Baal instead. So finally, three years of drought, Ahab has searched high and low every kingdom of the world he can get to. Finally, Elijah and Ahab come face to face. And what do they do when they, when they start? They trade, they trade barbs. They call each other names. <laughs> there you are, troublemaker. Uh, it's, um, the, my family history uh, says that my, when my dad was, was a child, his dad, who was a preacher, used to call him the troubler of Israel. Uh, I'm not one for name-calling personally, but at least it's biblical, right? Uh, troubler, if, if you, the, the commentaries that, that I looked at in, on this passage say that troubler isn't a strong enough word. Troubler, troubler is just kind of, kind of, it's almost cute, right? What Ahab was saying when he called Elijah the troubler of Israel is he's saying, there you are, the one who has brought curses upon Israel. You're the one who has, has gone and, and sought the dark, dark forces of this world to bring trouble on our nation. It, he is the one who has cursed Israel, is really the sense that that, that, that word in the Hebrew uh, gives us. And so uh, Elijah, Elijah says, am not, you are. Uh, he's... I'm rubber, you're glue, and you're the trouble with Israel. Maybe more becoming of a, of a prophet, Elijah tells Ahab that it is his refusal to obey the commands of the Lord uh, and his worship of the, of the images of Baal that have brought trouble on Israel. You know, Elijah, Elijah is the one who gets to speak the truth. In, in all of the stories, Elijah is the one who knows from God's perspective what the truth is. Elijah knows what, what God is seeing from, from God's position of, of omniscience and, and God being over all of creation. Elijah, Elijah is aligned with God's, God's vision. And so when Elijah says, the trouble with Israel, Ahab, is your refusal to obey God in your worship of the, of the images of Baal, that is the authoritative word. That, Thus saith the Lord right? That, there, there is no arguing that. But Ahab, uh, Ahab has a pretty good idea in his own mind of what's going on here. Ahab has been searching high and low for Elijah because Ahab, you know, the best conclusion that Ahab can make is, this drought started when Elijah came to me and said, it's not going to rain until I say so. Therefore, Elijah is the problem. So Ahab went out looking for Elijah. Ahab, Ahab knew that if he could just find Elijah, twist his arm hard enough, he would be able to stop the drought. He would be able to make it rain. He would be able to save the horses and mules. He'd be able to save the people. And so Ahab wants to, wants to punish Elijah. 
it's an interesting thing that we, we think about uh, Elijah representing God to the people of Israel as well as the prophet. It, Ahab and Jezebel have been trying to get rid of the prophets of God, right? They want to get rid of the people that talk about the Lord. Ahab had a sense that if he got rid of Elijah, things would be okay. I think this is, this is kind of a means of, of Elijah, uh, or of Ahab blaming God. You know, we, we can't see God, and so sometimes we like to blame the person who represents God. And that really seems to be what, what Ahab is doing here. Elijah speaks for God, therefore we need to get rid of, of Elijah, and then God won't keep causing us problems. It's really easy for us to do to, to turn our blame to God, too. When, when a problem comes along, uh, we, we want to sometimes say, well, why doesn't God just take care of that problem? Why would God let that happen? You know, it's, it's really easy in our, in our minds to, to think kind of simplistically and think, well, God, why, why wouldn't you just solve this for me? And a lot of times there's no good answers. <laughs> They just aren't good answers. The, the Psalms remind us, I've been reading through the Psalms, a, a bunch of Psalms a day uh, this week. The Psalms remind us that God, God will listen when we blame God. God will hear, hear our cries and, and God, will, God will accept it. And then God will, will take our complaints and, and remind us of his faithfulness in spite of our complaints. He'll, he'll take our, our foot stomping and our blaming and, and he'll say, come on, my child, I love you still. So, so Elijah sees perfectly the, the whole picture. He sees from God's perspective while Ahab sees what, what he sees through his human eyes. And unfortunately, Ahab is the classic example of the normal, Christ, or normal human experience, right? That's, that's the normal human experience. The normal human experience is to, to have a clouded view. It's, it is extraordinary to have clarity like Elijah. It is, it is normal to only see part of the picture. It's a gift from God to see the whole thing. It's normal to want to, to place blame and to be... To, be, to, to blame the right person, right? Whether it's, it's the prime minister in the House of Commons or the president of the United States or the good neighbor to the West or the person to whom we're related by marriage, it is normal to want to, to place blame. It is extraordinary to, to, want to, um, to want to trust God. It is extraordinary to do what Ahab is called to do. To, to say, is there somewhere that I'm trusting something other than God? It's, it's extraordinary to come face to face with the reality that as we're trying to blame others, there is a part of the blame that lies with us. The New Testament reminds us that instead of, instead of correcting the other, taking the speck out of the other's eye, we, we're supposed to start by taking the log out of our own eye. And so on this uh, 4th of July weekend, I think we're, we're called as, as believers in Christ to put down blame, to put down blame. 
it would be overly simplistic. It would be trite to say, if we would just all focus on our own, our own stuff, this whole nation would get, get better. Uh, it, would be, it would be too simple. <laughs> this is the reality of the things that are facing our nation are, are big and systemic and, and problematic on, on various fronts. But as believers, as believers, we are, we are called constantly to reorient ourselves to Christ. And week after week, we, we come to, to this place from, from a world that tries to deform us, a world that tries to get our focus on other problems or other people that might be the source of those problems, a world that tries to get us to blame people for, for the things that we see that are wrong, uh, a world that tempts us to, to get angry and, and stirs up our emotions about situations that we can't affect on our own. Week after week, we come back to this place to reorient ourselves and face the cross and, and to stand in front of the presence of Christ and say, Lord, here I am. I need to go closer to you again this week. And so we, we end our service today by, by taking the meal of communion. We are always called to examine our hearts before we go to communion. In, in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells the believers in Corinth, never take communion unworthily. What does he mean by that? He, he means that, he doesn't mean that we are perfect when we take communion. He means that we are willing to open our hearts to the grace of God in this meal. That we're willing to recognize where, where our imperfection is, is causing us to, to miss out on God's blessings. It, to recognize where we're trying to place blame on others for, for things we can't control. Instead of, of saying, Lord, help me, help me be a part of, of a solution. It, it means that we are, we are open to accepting responsibility where we need to. And it means that we're open to the, to the voice of God's Spirit speaking to our hearts. And so, we come to the table Dwayne and Kathy have elements. If you missed them on the way in, just raise your hand and, and they will bring them to you. Let me remind you what I remind you every time we take communion. The Lord himself ordained this holy sacrament. He has commanded his disciples to partake of the bread and wine as emblems of his broken body and his shed blood. This is his table. The feast is for his disciples. And so in our church, we invite anyone who is seeking Jesus to come and take. We, we always remember when we take that it's a memorial of the death and suffering of our Lord Jesus. But we also remember that it is a token of his coming again. And so we can't forget that when we come to this table, we are one with one host who is Jesus, our Lord. Will you pray with me? Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, by your grace, you sent Jesus to be our Savior, to bring forgiveness for our sins, to be the first fruit of the resurrection so that we would know what to hope for. Hear us, we most humbly pray. Lord, we, we come to you in this time recognizing our desire 
often as, as people who see just a portion of the picture, we, we have a great desire to want to blame, to point fingers, be it problems at home, problems in our country, problems in our world, Lord. We want to point fingers, but Lord, you, you call us. You call us to be people who, who look inside of ourselves and say, is there anything I'm trusting that isn't my God? Is, there any, is, is the reason for my anger over this issue because I'm hoping in something that isn't Jesus? Is, is the reason for my lack of, of uh, hope, for my, for my lack of, of peace, because I haven't sought the Lord enough? Because I'm seeking something that, that isn't the Lord for peace or for hope? And so, Lord, we open our hearts to you this morning and ask you to, to help us examine ourselves. That we would look to you and to you alone. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to strip away those things that we depend on that aren't you. That you, you would draw us closer and closer to yourself. We remember, Lord, on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it, gave thanks, gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, he took the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant made in my blood, which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink in remembrance of me. And so, Lord, in remembrance of these, your mighty acts in Christ Jesus, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit, on these gifts of bread and wine, that they would be for us, the body and blood of Jesus, so that we may be for the world, his body, redeemed by his blood. We trust you to do this by the power of your Holy Spirit. So we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. I invite you to take the bread. Remember, this is the body of Jesus, broken for you, take and eat in remembrance of him. And the cup, the cup of the new covenant, made in the blood of Jesus, poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins, take and drink in remembrance of him. Will you stand and let me pray for you? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have allowed us to participate in this holy mystery. We thank you for the grace of Jesus that is available to us as we come and sit at his table. We lay our hearts down that you would once again correct our direction. Help us, Lord, to go only to the cross, to focus only on Jesus. In a world that tries to get our attention away from Jesus in so many ways, Lord, Help us to come to our Savior and trust only in him. We thank you for, for all that this meal means. We thank you, Lord, for, for inviting us to this table. We pray that we would go up from this table into the various places that life calls us this week. Remembering that you are always welcoming us into your presence. 
You are always calling us and hosting us to a feast in your spirit. And you are always calling us to be united one with another. So Lord, may, may we love you well, trust you alone, and may our love for you spill out and be shown in our relationships as we go into this week. Bless us, Lord, we pray, as a nation, as we celebrate this day of independence. We thank you, God, for this place that we call home. We pray, Lord, that our determination as believers would be to trust in you, to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven as maybe more than we are citizens of the United States. But Lord, that we, we, would, we would be a light for you in this nation. We, we pray for your blessing. We recognize that you may be, may be calling us to be a part of that blessing. So we ask God that as we seek after you, we would be a blessing to our country. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for this time, for your presence that has guided us through this time of worship, and for your presence that will go with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you go, may you have the clarity of Elijah to hear clearly the voice of God. You are dismissed.